0: Chapter Nineteen of Green Mansions. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Green Mansions by W. H. Hudson, Chapter Nineteen. My arrival at the village created some excitement but I was plainly no longer regarded as a friend or one of the family. Rooney was absent, and I looked forward to his return with no little apprehension. He would doubtless decide my fate. Kua-Ko was also away. The others sat or stood about the great room, staring at me in silence. I took no notice, but merely asked for food, then for my hammock, which I hung up in the old place, and lying down I fell into a doze. Rooney made his appearance at dusk. I rose and greeted him, but he spoke no word, and, until he went to his hammock, sat in sullen silence, ignoring my presence. On the following day the crisis came. We were once more gathered in the room, all but Kuiko and another of the men, who had not yet returned from some expedition, and for the space of half an hour not a word was spoken by any one. Something was expected. Even the children were strangely still, and whenever one of the pet birds strayed in at the open door, uttering a little plaintive note, it was chased out again, but without a sound. At length Rooney straightened himself on his seat and fixed his eyes on me, then cleared his throat and began a long harangue, delivered in the loud monotonous sing-song which I knew so well, and which meant that the occasion was an important one. And as is usual in such efforts, the same thought and expressions were used again and again, and yet again, with dull, angry insistence. The orator of Guyana to be impressive must be long, however little he may have to say. Strange as it may seem, I listened critically to him, not without a feeling of scorn at his lower intelligence. But I was easier in my mind now. From the very fact of his addressing such a speech to me, I was convinced that he wished not to take my life, and would not do so if I could clear myself of the suspicion of treachery. I was a white man, he said. They were Indians. Nevertheless, they had treated me well. They had fed me and sheltered me. They had done a great deal for me. They had taught me the use of the Sabatana, and had promised to make one for me, asking for nothing in return. They had also promised me a wife. How had I treated them? I had deserted them, going away secretly to a distance, leaving them in doubt as to my intentions. How could they tell why I had gone, and where? They had an enemy. Managa was his name. He and his people hated them. I knew that he wished them evil. I knew where to find him, for they had told me. That was what they thought when I suddenly left them. Now I returned to them, saying that I had been to Riolama. He knew where Rialama was, although he had never been there, it was so far. Why did I go to Riolama? It was a bad place. There were Indians there, a few, but they were not good Indians like those of Parahuari, and would kill a white man. Had I gone there? Why had I gone there? He finished at last, then it was my turn to speak but he had given me plenty of time, and my reply was ready. "'I have heard you,' I said. "'Your words are good words. They are the words of a friend.' "'I am the white man's friend,' you say. "'Is he my friend?' He went away secretly, saying no word. Why did he go without speaking to his friend, who had treated him well? "'Has he been to my enemy, Managa?' "'Perhaps he is a friend of my enemy?' WHERE HAS HE BEEN? I MUST NOW ANSWER THESE THINGS, SAYING TRUE WORDS TO MY FRIEND. YOU ARE AN INDIAN. I AM A WHITE MAN. YOU DO NOT KNOW ALL THE WHITE MAN'S THOUGHTS. THESE ARE THE THINGS I WISH TO TELL YOU. IN THE WHITE MAN'S COUNTRY ARE TWO KINDS OF MEN. THERE ARE THE RICH MEN, WHO HAVE ALL THAT A MAN CAN DESIRE. HOUSES MADE OF STONE, FULL OF FINE THINGS, FINE CLOTHES, FINE WEAPONS, FINE ORNAMENTS and they have horses, cattle, sheep, dogs, everything they desire. Because they have gold, for with gold the white man buys everything. The other kind of white men are the poor, who have no gold, and cannot buy or have anything. They must work hard for the rich man for the little food he gives them, and a rag to cover their nakedness, and if he gives them shelter they have it, if not, they must lie down in the rain out of doors. In my own country, a hundred days from here, I was the son of a great chief, who had much gold, and when he died it was all mine, and I was rich. But I had an enemy, one worse than Managa, for he was rich and had many people. And in a war his people overcame mine, and he took my gold, and all I possessed, making me poor.' THE INDIAN KILLS HIS ENEMY, BUT THE WHITE MAN TAKES HIS GOLD, AND THAT IS WORSE THAN DEATH. THEN I SAID, I HAVE BEEN A RICH MAN, AND NOW I AM POOR, AND MUST WORK LIKE A DOG FOR SOME RICH MAN, FOR THE SAKE OF THE LITTLE FOOD HE WILL THROW ME AT THE END OF EACH DAY. NO, I CANNOT DO IT. I WILL GO AWAY AND LIVE WITH THE INDIANS, SO THAT THOSE WHO HAVE SEEN ME A RICH MAN SHALL NEVER SEE ME WORKING LIKE A DOG FOR A master, AND CRY OUT AND MOCK AT ME for the Indians are not like white men. They have no gold, they are not rich and poor, all are alike. One roof covers them from the rain and sun. All have weapons which they make, all kill birds in the forest and catch fish in the rivers, and the women cook the meat and all eat from one pot. And with the Indians I will be an Indian, and hunt in the forest and eat with them and drink with them. THEN I LEFT MY COUNTRY, AND CAME HERE, AND LIVED WITH YOU, Rooney, AND WAS WELL TREATED. AND NOW, WHY DID I GO AWAY? THIS I HAVE NOW TO TELL YOU. AFTER I HAD BEEN HERE A CERTAIN TIME, I WENT OVER THERE TO THE FOREST. YOU WISHED ME NOT TO GO, BECAUSE OF AN EVIL THING, A DAUGHTER OF THE DEEDE, THAT LIVED THERE. BUT I FEARED NOTHING, AND WENT. THERE I MET AN OLD MAN, WHO TALKED TO ME IN THE WHITE MAN'S LANGUAGE. HE HAD TRAVELED AND SEEN MUCH, AND TOLD ME ONE STRANGE THING. ON A MOUNTAIN AT RIOLAMA HE TOLD ME THAT HE HAD SEEN A GREAT LUMP OF GOLD, AS MUCH AS A MAN COULD CARRY. AND WHEN I HEARD THIS I SAID, WITH THE GOLD I COULD RETURN TO MY COUNTRY, AND BUY WEAPONS FOR MYSELF AND ALL MY PEOPLE, AND GO TO WAR WITH MY ENEMY, AND DEPRIVE HIM OF ALL HIS POSSESSIONS, AND SERVE HIM AS HE HAS SERVED ME. I asked the old man to take me to Rialama, and when he had consented, I went away from here without saying a word, so as not to be prevented. It is far to Rialama, and I had no weapons, but I feared nothing. I said, If I must fight, I must fight, and if I must be killed, I must be killed. But when I got to Rialama I found no gold." THERE WAS ONLY A YELLOW STONE WHICH THE OLD MAN HAD MISTAKEN FOR GOLD. IT WAS YELLOW LIKE GOLD, BUT IT WOULD BUY NOTHING. THEREFORE I CAME BACK TO PARAHUARI AGAIN, TO MY FRIEND, AND IF HE IS ANGRY WITH ME STILL, BECAUSE I WENT AWAY WITHOUT INFORMING HIM, LET HIM SAY, GO AND SEEK ELSEWHERE FOR A NEW FRIEND, FOR I AM YOUR FRIEND NO LONGER. I concluded thus boldly, because I did not wish him to know that I had suspected him of harbouring any sinister designs, or that I looked on our quarrel as a very serious one. When I had finished speaking he emitted a sound which expressed neither approval nor disapproval, but only the fact that he had heard me. But I was satisfied. His expression had undergone a favourable change. It was less grim. After a while, he remarked, with a peculiar twitching of the mouth which might have developed into a smile, "'The white man will do much to get gold. You walked twenty days to see a yellow stone that would buy nothing.' It was fortunate that he took this view of the case, which was flattering to his Indian nature, and perhaps touched his sense of the ludicrous. At all events, he said nothing to discredit my story, to which they had all listened with profound interest.' From that time it seemed to be tacitly agreed to let bygones be bygones, and I could see that as the dangerous feeling that had threatened my life diminished, the old pleasure they had once found in my company returned. But my feelings towards them did not change, nor could they, while that black and terrible suspicion concerning Rima was in my heart. I talked again freely with them, as if there had been no break in the old friendly relations. If they watched me furtively whenever I went out of doors, I affected not to see it. I set to work to repair my rude guitar, which had been broken in my absence, and studied to show them a cheerful countenance. But when alone, or in my hammock, hidden from their eyes, free to look into my own heart, then I was conscious that something new and strange had come into my life, that a new nature, black and implacable, had taken the place of the old. And sometimes it was hard to conceal this fury that burnt in me. Sometimes I felt an impulse to spring like a tiger on one of the Indians, to hold him fast by the throat, until the secret I wished to learn was forced from his lips, then to dash his brains out against the stone. But they were many, and there was no choice but to be cautious and patient, if I wished to outwit them with a cunning superior to their own. Three days after my arrival at the village, Kua-Ko returned with his companion. I greeted him with affected warmth, but was really pleased that he was back, believing that if the Indians knew anything of Rima, he, among them all, would be most likely to tell it. Kua-Ko appeared to have brought some important news, which he discussed with Rooney and the others, and on the following day I noticed that preparations for an expedition were in progress. Spears and bows and arrows were got ready but not blowpipes, and I knew by this that the expedition would not be a hunting one. Having discovered so much, also that only four men were going out, I called Kuwako aside, and begged him to let me go with them. He seemed pleased at the proposal, and at once repeated it to Rooney, who considered for a little, and then consented. By and by he said, touching his bow, "'You cannot fight with our weapons. "'What will you do if we meet an enemy?' "'I smiled and returned that I would not run away. "'All I wished to show him was that his enemies were my enemies, "'that I was ready to fight for my friend.' "'He was pleased at my words, and said no more, and gave me no weapons. "'Next morning, however, when we set out before daylight, "'I made the discovery that he was carrying my revolver fastened to his waist.' He had concealed it carefully under the one simple garment he wore, but it bulged slightly, and so the secret was betrayed. I had never believed that he had lost it, and I was convinced that he took it now with the object of putting it into my hands at the last moment in case of meeting with an enemy. From the village we travelled in a northwesterly direction, and before noon camped in a grove of dwarf trees, where we remained until the sun was low then continued our walk through a rather barren country. At night we camped again beside a small stream, only a few inches deep, and after a meal of smoked meat and parched maize prepared to sleep till dawn of the next day. Sitting by the fire I resolved to make a first attempt to discover from Kuwiko anything concerning Rima which might be known to him. Instead of lying down when the others did, I remained seated, my guardian also sitting no doubt waiting for me to lie down first presently i moved nearer to him and began a conversation in a low voice anxious not to arouse the attention of the other men once you said that ualava would be given to me for a wife i began some day i shall want a wife he nodded approval and remarked sententiously that the desire to possess a wife was common to all men what has been left to me I said despondingly, and spreading out my hands, "'My pistol gone! And did I not give Rooney the tinder-box, and the little box with a cock painted on it, to you? I had no return, not even the blow-pipe. How, then, can I get me a wife?' He, like the others, dull-witted savage that he was, had come to the belief that I was incapable of the cunning and duplicity they practised, I could not see a green parrot sitting silent and motionless amidst the green foliage as they could. I had not their preternatural keenness of sight. And, in like manner, to deceive with lies and false seeming was their faculty, and not mine. He fell readily into the trap. My return to practical subjects pleased him. He bade me hope that Oualava might yet be mine in spite of my poverty— It was not always necessary to have things to get a wife. To be able to maintain her was enough. Some day I would be like one of themselves, able to kill animals and catch fish. Besides, did not Rooney wish to keep me with them for other reasons? But he could not keep me wifeless. I could do much. I could sing and make music. I was brave and feared nothing. I could teach the children to fight." HE DID NOT SAY, HOWEVER, THAT I COULD TEACH ANYTHING TO ONE OF HIS YEARS and ATTAINMENTS. I PROTESTED THAT HE GAVE ME TOO MUCH PRAISE, THAT THEY WERE JUST AS BRAVE. DID THEY NOT SHOW A COURAGE EQUAL TO MINE BY GOING EVERY DAY TO HUNT IN THAT WOOD WHICH WAS INHABITED BY THE DAUGHTER OF THE deity? I CAME TO THIS SUBJECT WITH FEAR AND TREMBLING, BUT HE TOOK IT QUIETLY. HE SHOOK HIS HEAD, AND THEN ALL AT ONCE BEGAN TO TELL ME HOW THEY FIRST CAME TO GO THERE TO HUNT. HE SAID THAT A FEW DAYS AFTER I HAD SECRETLY DISAPPEARED, TWO MEN AND A WOMAN, RETURNING HOME FROM A DISTANT PLACE WHERE THEY HAD BEEN ON A VISIT TO A RELATION, STOPPED AT THE VILLAGE. THESE TRAVELERS RELATED THAT TWO DAYS' JOURNEY FROM Itaiowa, THEY HAD MET THREE PERSONS TRAVELING IN AN OPPOSITE DIRECTION. AN OLD MAN WITH A WHITE BEARD, FOLLOWED BY TWO YELLOW DOGS, A YOUNG MAN IN A BIG CLOAK, AND A STRANGE-LOOKING GIRL. Thus it came to be known that I had left the wood with the old man and the daughter of the Deedee. It was great news to them, for they did not believe that we had any intention of returning, and at once they began to hunt in the wood, and went there every day, killing birds, monkeys, and other animals in numbers. His words had begun to excite me greatly, but I studied to appear calm and only slightly interested, so as to draw him on to say more. "'Then we returned,' I said at last. "'But only two of us, and not together. "'I left the old man on the road, and she left us in Riolama. "'She went away from us into the mountains. "'Who knows whither?' "'But she came back,' he returned, with a gleam of devilish satisfaction in his eyes "'that made the blood run cold in my veins. "'It was hard to dissemble still, to tempt him to say something that would madden me. "'No, no.' i answered after considering his words she feared to return she went away to hide herself in the great mountains beyond riolama she could not come back but she came back he persisted with that triumphant gleam in his eyes once more under my cloak my hand had clutched my knife handle but i strove hard against the fierce almost maddening impulse to pluck it out and bury it quick as lightning in his accursed throat He continued, Seven days before you returned we saw her in the wood. We were always expecting, watching, always afraid, and when hunting we were three and four together. On that day I and three others saw her. It was in an open place, where the trees are big and wide apart. We started up and chased her when she ran from us but feared to shoot. And in one moment she climbed up into a small tree, then, like a monkey, passed from its highest branches into a big tree. We could not see her there, but she was there in the big tree, for there was no other tree near, no way of escape. Three of us sat down to watch, and the other went back to the village. He was long gone, we were just going to leave the tree, fearing that she would do us some injury, when he came back, and with him all the others, men, women, and children. They brought axes and knives." THEN Rooney SAID, LET NO ONE SHOOT AN ARROW INTO THE TREE, THINKING TO HIT HER, FOR THE ARROW WOULD BE CAUGHT IN HER HAND AND THROW BACK AT HIM. WE MUST BURN HER IN THE TREE. THERE IS NO WAY TO KILL HER EXCEPT BY FIRE. THEN WE WENT ROUND AND ROUND LOOKING UP, BUT COULD SEE NOTHING, AND SOMEONE SAID, SHE HAS ESCAPED, FLYING LIKE A BIRD FROM THE TREE. BUT Rooney ANSWERED THAT FIRE WOULD SHOW. So we cut down the small tree, and lopped the branches off, and heaped them around the big trunk. Then at a distance we cut down ten more small trees, and afterwards, further away, ten more, and then others, and piled them all round, tree after tree, until the pile reached as far from the trunk as that. And here he pointed to a bush forty to fifty yards from where we sat. The feeling with which I had listened to this recital had become intolerable. The sweat ran from me in streams, I shivered like a person in a fit of ague, and clenched my teeth together to prevent them from rattling. "'I must drink,' I said, cutting him short and rising to my feet. He also rose, but did not follow me, when, with uncertain steps, I made my way to the waterside, which was ten or twelve yards away. Lying prostrate on my chest, I took a long draught of clear, cold water and held my face for a few moments in the current. It sent a chill through me, drying my wet skin and bracing me for the concluding part of the hideous narrative. Slowly I stepped back to the fireside and sat down again, while he resumed his old place at my side. "'You burnt the tree down,' I said. "'Finish telling me now, and let me sleep.' MY EYES ARE HEAVY. YES. WHILE THE MEN CUT AND BROUGHT TREES, THE WOMEN AND CHILDREN GATHERED DRY STUFF IN THE FOREST AND BROUGHT IT IN THEIR ARMS AND PILED IT ROUND. THEN THEY SET FIRE TO IT ON ALL SIDES, LAUGHING AND SHOUTING, BURN! BURN, DAUGHTER OF THE DEEDE! AT LENGTH ALL THE LOWER BRANCHES OF THE BIG TREE WERE ON FIRE, AND THE TRUNK WAS ON FIRE, BUT ABOVE IT WAS STILL GREEN, AND WE COULD SEE NOTHING. BUT THE FLAMES WENT UP HIGHER AND HIGHER WITH A GREAT NOISE, AND AT LAST FROM THE TOP OF THE TREE, OUT OF THE GREEN LEAVES, CAME A GREAT CRY, LIKE THE CRY OF A BIRD, ABEL, ABEL! AND THEN LOOKING, WE SAW SOMETHING FALL, THROUGH LEAVES AND SMOKE AND FLAME IT FELL, LIKE A GREAT WHITE BIRD, KILLED WITH AN ARROW, AND FALLING TO THE EARTH, AND FELL INTO THE FLAMES BENEATH, AND IT WAS THE DAUGHTER OF THE Deedi and she was burnt to ashes like a moth in the flames of a fire, and no one has ever heard or seen her since. It was well for me that he spoke rapidly, and finished quickly. Even before he had quite concluded, I drew my cloak round my face, and stretched myself out. And I supposed that he at once followed my example, but I had grown blind and deaf to outward things just then. My heart no longer throbbed violently, it fluttered and seemed to grow feebler and feebler in its action. I remember that there was a dull rushing sound in my ears, that I gasped for breath, that my life seemed ebbing away. After these horrible sensations had passed, I remained quiet for about half an hour. And during this time the picture of that last act, in the hateful tragedy, grew more and more distinct and vivid in my mind, until I seemed to be actually gazing on it, until my ears were filled with the hissing and crackling of the fire, the exultant shouts of the savages, and above all the last piercing cry of Abel! Abel! from the cloud of burning foliage. I could not endure it longer, and rose at last to my feet. I glanced at Kuiko, lying two or three yards away, and he, like the others, was or appeared to be in a deep sleep, He was lying on his back, and his dark firelit face looked as still and unconscious as a face of stone. Now was my chance to escape, if to escape was my wish. Yes, for I now possessed the coveted knowledge, and nothing more was to be gained by keeping with my deadly enemies. And now, most fortunately for me, they had brought me far on the road to that place of the five hills where Managa lived. Managa! whose name had been often in my mind since my return to Parahuari. Glancing away from Kuako's still stone like face, I caught sight of that pale, solitary star which Rooney had pointed out to me low down in the northwestern sky, when I had asked him where his enemy lived. In that direction we had been travelling since leaving the village. Surely if I walked all night, by tomorrow I could reach Managa's hunting ground and be safe, and think over what I had heard, and on what I had to do. I moved softly away a few steps, then thinking that it would be well to take a spear in my hand, I turned back, and was surprised and startled to notice that Ko had moved in the interval. He had turned over on his side, and his face was now towards me. His eyes appeared closed, but he might be only feigning sleep, and I dared not go back to pick up the spear." After a moment's hesitation, I moved on again, and after a second glance back, and seeing that he did not stir, I waded cautiously across the stream, walked softly twenty or thirty yards, and then began to run. At intervals I paused to listen for a moment, and presently I heard a pattering sound, as of footsteps coming swiftly after me. I instantly concluded that Ko had been awake all the time, watching my movements, and that he was now following me. I now put forth my whole speed, and while thus running could distinguish no sound. That he would miss me, for it was very dark, although with a starry sky above, was my only hope, for with no weapon except my knife my chances would be small indeed should he overtake me. Besides, he had no doubt roused the others before starting, and they would be close behind. There were no bushes in that place to hide myself in, and let them pass me. And presently, to make matters worse, the character of the soil changed, and I was running over level, clayey ground, so white with a salt efflorescence that a dark object moving on it would show conspicuously at a distance. Here I paused to look back and listen, when distinctly came the sound of footsteps, and the next moment I made out the vague form of an Indian advancing at a rapid rate of speed, and with his uplifted spear in his hand. In the brief pause I had made, he had advanced almost to within hurling distance of me, and turning I sped on again, throwing off my cloak to ease my flight. The next time I looked back he was still in sight, but not so near. He had stopped to pick up my cloak, which would be his now, and this had given me a slight advantage. I fled on, and had continued running for a distance perhaps of fifty yards when an object rushed past me tearing through the flesh of my left arm close to the shoulder on its way, and not knowing that I was not badly wounded, nor how near my pursuer might be, I turned in desperation to meet him, and saw him not above twenty-five yards away, running towards me with something bright in his hand. It was kua and after wounding me with his spear he was about to finish me with his knife. Oh, fortunate young savage! After such a victory— and with that noble blue-cloth cloak for trophy and covering, what fame and happiness will be yours! A change, swift as lightning, had come over me, a sudden exultation. I was wounded, but my right hand was sound and clutched a knife as good as his, and we were on an equality. I waited for him calmly. All weakness, grief, despair had vanished. All feelings except a terrible raging desire to spill his accursed blood— my brain was clear, and my nerves like steel, and I remembered with something like laughter our old amusing encounters with rapiers of wood. Ah! that was only making believe and childish play. This was reality. Could any white man, deprived of his treacherous far-killing weapon, meet the resolute savage, face to face and foot to foot, and equal him with the old primitive weapons? Poor youth! THIS DELUSION WILL COST YOU DEAR. IT WAS SCARCELY AN EQUAL CONTEST WHEN HE HURLED HIMSELF AGAINST ME, WITH ONLY HIS SAVAGE STRENGTH AND COURAGE TO MATCH MY SKILL. IN A FEW MOMENTS HE WAS LYING AT MY FEET, POURING OUT HIS LIFE BLOOD ON THAT WHITE THIRSTY plain. FROM HIS PROSTRATE FORM I TURNED, THE WET RED KNIFE IN MY HAND, TO MEET THE OTHERS, STILL THINKING THAT THEY WERE ON THE TRACK AND CLOSE AT HAND. Why had he stooped to pick up the cloak if they were not following, if he had not been afraid of losing it? I turned only to receive their spears, to die with my face to them. Nor was the thought of death terrible to me. I could die calmly now, after killing my first assailant. But had I indeed killed him? I asked, hearing a sound like a groan escape from his lips. Quickly stooping, I once more drove my weapon to the hilt in his prostrate form and when he exhaled a deep sigh, and his frame quivered, and the blood spurted afresh, I experienced a feeling of savage joy. And still no sound of hurrying footsteps came to my listening ears, and no vague forms appeared in the darkness. I concluded that he had either left them sleeping, or that they had not followed in the right direction. Taking up the cloak, I was about to walk on, when I noticed the spear he had thrown at me lying where it had fallen some yards away, and picking that up also, I went on once more, still keeping the guiding star before me. End of chapter